Uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know our standard operating procedure, a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness and Your grace. We don't know from one day to the next what all we're going to deal with. But we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be full of foreboding and dread because we recognize that You will enable us. You will help us to endure, to go through whatever storms that might come our way. We're so thankful for Your grace that none of this depends upon us. Everything depends upon who and what You are. So as we continue in getting the gospel right, we pray that you will help us to assimilate this information deep into our souls, into our long-term memory, so that we will be ready to give anyone, anywhere, who asks us anything about our God and the hope that is within us, we will be ready. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I received an email today had to do with the, uh, actually it was from uh, the U.S. Department of State. And I'll read it to you, it's very short. Then I'm going to tell you who it was from, which I think is interesting. The, by the way, this is February 23rd is when this came out. The United States is deeply concerned by reports that a Provincial court has renewed the execution order for Iranian pastor Yosef Nadarkhani. Mr. Darkhani is facing the death sentence on charges of apostasy and has refused to recant his Christian faith. Well, my hat goes off to him. Such government persecution for simply following one's faith is common in Iran where followers of many religious traditions face harsh treatment and severe violations of their religious freedom. We have also witnessed a dramatic increase in the arrest of adherents to the Baha'i faith recently, as well as an increase in repression from freedom of expression in all forms. We stand with religious and political leaders from around the world in condemning Yosef Tarhani's conviction and call for his immediate release. Things like this, of course, go on around the world every day. But what struck me as being a little unusual that this came from the Consulate General of Israel to the Southwest. So you have Israel that is sending something to um, a Christian pastor that is uh, really essentially calling for prayer for someone who is not Jewish in a in a Iran, so uh, I think that says a lot that um, they that he would do that, and it not you know some people think the, Is- the Israelis are only interested in Israel, and I guess every country that is true to a degree, but this doesn't have anything to do with the Jews. It has to do with uh, a Christian who is in peril in Iran. I thought that was worth uh, noting. Okay, we're going to continue now in our study of 
getting the gospel right. More and more as we go through these scriptures and as we study, we find the importance of being able to discern in scripture what has to do with eternal salvation, which we have put a label on as positional, and with the Christian life after salvation, which we call experiential. When you go through verses that we've been going through, hopefully you will get to where you you can put your eyes on that verse and you can determine by its context, by the words and so forth, if it is experiential or whether it is experiential. This is a must. If you cannot do that, then you're going to be confused and befuddled when it comes to being able to give the gospel to people who are going to bring up these verses and say, you say it's by faith alone in Christ alone, but what about this? And I was thinking about how can we express ourselves to people who are totally uninitiated with regards to the Bible. In other words, if we just throw out terms, oh, well, that's positional or that's experiential, to them this is completely confusing. They have no frame of reference for that. So we have to use our own words to convey thoughts where they can understand that there is a difference because hardly anyone is pointing this out. This is critical that we are able to do this. And you might use the word positional, but you have to qualify it. You have to explain it because if someone questions you on a verse that they are trying to allege that is what we would call positional when you know it's experiential, you might express to them that that words have a range of meaning. And in that range of meaning, words found in the Bible sometimes are pertaining to the point in which a person is saved when they believe in Jesus Christ. Like the word saved, for instance. That is part of the range of of meanings in that word is cer- certainly pertains to when a person believes in Jesus Christ, they are eternally saved. However, that same word is used in other scriptures that has a different meaning. And in other scriptures, sometimes it has nothing whatsoever to do with eternal salvation or the gospel, but it has everything to do with just being delivered. That same word is used. So maybe if you just explained it to them in those terms, without saying, oh, well, that's positional and then experiential and then trying to explain it to them. Just help them understand that every time you see a word in Scripture, you have to check the context and you have to see what word or what meaning that word is having in that particular Scripture because most words, even in the Greek, have a pretty wide range of meanings. So I thought I would throw that out there for you so that you wouldn't feel intimidated when someone asks, well, this is, this is talking about a person who has to do such and such in order to be saved. He has to endure. He has to uh, keep from falling from the faith. And he has to abide and all these other things. Think about it. I'm, I'm just expressing it off the cuff how I would explain it to someone to help them understand Well, that looks like because that word salvation is used, or it could be other words, but they they would think that they narrow it down to one meaning in a word, and many times it has other meanings. The context tells the story. Plus, of course, your systematic theology 
And that is simply weighing each verse in the Bible against the other verses in the Bible so that it harmonizes. Okay? This is where we left last time. and There's a few things that I wanted to touch on that I didn't last time. This is one of those verses, by the way, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Actually, this verse is a profound eternal security verse. Even though people will try to use this one in order to have you doubt whether, whether you're really saved or not, it's really doing just the opposite. <clears throat> so we'll just quickly review this because you need to have it reviewed. I think I gave you this last time after giving you the participles and there was a little befuddling of the mind there. And so it might not, we didn't start out with a clear mind. We were already in some of the grammar and so forth. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. The Greek words here used, I wish they would have translated it this way. Faithful is the word. Pistuo ton lagos. Now, we know that there is a written word and there is a living word. And this holds true for both. Faithful is the word. You can depend on the word, the word of God, the Bible. And then he starts setting up some conditional clauses. He says, for if we died with him, and of course this is the aristocratic indicative meaning, and we did, every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is identified with Christ in his death whether they know it or not. So if we died with him, and of course Paul is including himself in this, we will also live with him. And we have these words down here that I'll look at in a moment. If we endure, and this is present active indicative, and since it's in the First class condition of this conditional clause, it means then we are, or at least some are. Now it's it's I'm not going to argue the point whether it's saying some are and some aren't, or where or whether all of them are some of the time but not all the time. In any case, it's 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 no one endures all the time. But they were enduring some of the time. So if we endure and that is endure sound doctrine, if we endure all of the storms and trials that come our way, if we apply doctrine to those, if we keep on growing spiritually, if we do that, then we will also reign with Him. That's a future active indicative. And that is a sure sign. If we endure, we endure in our Christian life in time on earth, then it's a certainty that we will also reign with Him. And that's what this verse is about. This is what this is all about, is reigning with Christ. It's about reward, because reigning with Christ is a reward. Some think that everyone, every believer is going to reign with Christ. Some will have more authority than others. Well, maybe so. I'm more of the thinking that there are going to be those who have no authority. They're not going to reign. They never did anything in this life to be rewarded, and so some will have authority and some won't. Now, 
The next part of this verse is where it gets sticky for some. If we deny Him, and some were, this is the first class conditional clause, and it's a future middle indicative. If we deny Him in the future, and some will, He will also deny us. Now, it's understood what He's talking about. If you look at the context, we have in the same verse, if you endure, you will also reign, and if we deny, then He will deny us. And some people will take it completely out of context. Even though in the same verse it is talking about reigning with Christ, which is a reward, and they say, oh no, it doesn't have anything to do with rewards, it's talking about losing your eternal salvation. Well, we know better than that. <clears throat> verse 13 if we are faithless, and some of them were, we're all faithless sometime, aren't we? We're not always a good and faithful servant. Sometimes we allow mental attitude sins to penetrate our soul. And that's not being faithful. So if we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. See, where it says, He remains faithful. He is the Word and remains faithful. And we connect that up there with faithful is the Word. He is the Word. And so that is a, that's a beautiful parallel there that it starts out with, faithful is the Word, and it ends with, He remains faithful. He, Christ, the Word, is faithful and He remains faithful. And He cannot deny Himself. We looked at this already, what died means here. Here's some explanatory verses. In uh, Romans chapter 6, I don't think I'll, I'll linger there because we already went into it. This is what we would call retroactive positional truth. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, if you go and you read Romans 6, it's talking about you were crucified with Christ, you died with Christ. Not in a literal sense, but in a positional sense we did, and we've already gone through that. Every, every believer go, has that relationship. And then we say you also live with Him. Here we have... Uh, Suzao, future active indicative, it means to continue to live together with someone with the express or implied meaning of eternal life with Christ. So it's not saying that you are going to get a new life. It's just a continuation of a relationship that you already had. And that's from Zodiati's Complete Word Study Dictionary. Now here's words here, the word deny. Look up here in this verse. I didn't have this before. I added this. Somebody asked me... Uh, about this word, and I thought, well, it would be um, more clear if I uh, dealt with it. Here you have <clears throat> deny, if we deny him. And we have here uh, deny, cannot deny himself. And there's one other time in it. Where is it? He will also, where is it? If we, he will also deny. Oh, oh yeah, here they are. Deny, deny, and deny. Three times it's used. And so I thought, boy, uh, what does it mean to deny? And so I went and did a little exegesis on this particular word, deny. The Greek word is arneomai, A-R-N-E-O-M-A-I. It's a verb, future, middle, indicative. Uh, the future tense means, of course, it's gonna ha it would uh, happen in the future. The middle voice is that the subject is of deny, One is, is acting upon itself or being affected by that action. The indicative mood is reality. 
Here are the four, four meanings of this word, deny. I have a little number right here uh, by these. And I got these from the, uh, they call it BDAG, Bauer Dankwart in uh, Gingrich, I believe it is. And it is the go-to dictionary. The church bought this dictionary for me, and it was over $200 for this one dictionary. And that was the electrical part of it. So I use it all the time. Uh, it means, number one, to refuse consent to something. So you can deny something just by refusing consent. For instance, we're mandated by the Word to love others as Christ loved us. Now, you can de deny that by refusing to consent to that command. That's how that's used. It's the second way that this deny or second meaning is to state that something is not true. For instance, if someone said Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you denied it, said no, it's not. It's not true. That would be a, a form of denial. Number three is to disclaim association with a person or event to deny, repudiate, or disown. I think a lot of people automatically think that's what deny means, and maybe it does. This is what Peter did. Remember when he denied Christ three times? He denied any association with him. And then the fourth use is to refuse to pay a, 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 any attention to or disregard or renounce. The context determines which meaning of deny would apply in this verse. And it appears that in any of these, that any of these meanings could apply both in verse 12 and 13. In other words, we're not sure, I'm not sure which one he's talking about in these, because when you start looking at these, which kind of deny it means, it could be any of them. So it doesn't really matter which definition of deny you take, whether you're denying uh, something that the Lord tells us to do, and we say, no, we don't do it, that's denying an order negatively there, or if we're denying association with Him, or, <clears throat> or what was the third one? Um, to disclaim association with him, to to pay uh, to refuse to pay attention to that that one boy that hits so many Christians doesn't it? They just ignore God, and that would be denying him in that fashion. It would be uh, <clears throat> refusing to pay attention to someone and or to the Bible. So I thought I, I would bring that out. Here's the thing. It is impossible for Christ to deny the promises and statements He made concerning salvation or really anything else. Let's look up this in context again. If we deny Him, whichever way you want to, meaning you want to associate with that, however we do it, then He will deny us. We can't expect to be rewarded and for... Uh, Jesus Christ to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if most of our life on earth we were denying Him in some form or fashion. I don't think, most of the time, I don't think it's referring to uh, saying, I don't believe in Jesus Christ anymore. I don't think He's the Son of God. I am renouncing Christianity, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a Hindu now. Well, it's done sometimes, but I don't, most of the time that's not how, what people do, is it? They deny Him by ignoring Him. They deny Him by... Uh, not being obedient to the things that he says. They uh, deny any association with him. There's so many Christians that when they get out in the secular world, uh, they live like the world, and they don't want to be associated with Christ, except on Sunday. 
And some of them not even then. With that in mind, is what I'm saying here, is that it is impossible for Christ to deny the promises and statements He made concerning salvation, really, or anything else. He promised to give eternal life to anyone who trusts in Him alone for salvation, and He will never go back on His Word, even when believers renounce Him. However, they may do it. He has perfect veracity, and He is immutable, for He cannot deny Himself. But this whole thing isn't about eternal salvation anyway. It's about what? Rewards. About whether you're going to reign or not. And then I had these verses, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said he will, has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will not make it good? Of course, these are... Uh, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. That's His immutability. Uh, Titus 1, 1 and 2 says it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth would pass away, but my words will not pass away. So He cannot deny. It. What I'm saying is it is utterly impossible for Jesus Christ to base what He's going to do based on your behavior. Because it's not based on your behavior. The reason that he can be immutable and that he will never lie is because it's not based on that. It's based on his integrity. And I'm sure if we would try to put ourselves in God's place and we were dealing with Christians, not head, stupid, arrogant, imbecile believers, we would want to take it back, wouldn't we? We want to say, I can't believe that person is so horrible. I think I'll just take back on that one. I, we might be tempted... It's, it's impossible for God to do that. So and with all that in view, I'm saying that is an eternal security verse for us. But what do people do? All they do is zero in on it. If we deny Him, He will deny us. They take that one phrase, poop, and just break it completely out of context, and they throw it at some believer, and the believer, oh, well, I don't know. You know they're just they're undone because they haven't been trained. They can't think critically. They don't know systematic theology. They can't go to all the verses with regards to faith alone in Christ. But you are not of that ilk, are you? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the essence of these passages can be expressed in one sentence. This is what... What this, these verses up here in, um, I'm sorry, you're probably getting dizzy. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 3. This is the essence of those verses, and here it is. Our eternal salvation does not depend on our faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. And aren't you glad? The same principle of denying believers' reward for being unfaithful is found in other passages. Now, I didn't give you these before, but I want to make some parallels here. I mean, this is not just an aberrant verse that is kind of obscure, and this principle you can't find anywhere else in the Bible. I'm going to give you a few more verses to show you. And the principle is that uh, denying believers' rewards is found in other passages for being unfaithful. Here's one right here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses, and what do we know that confess means? It means to acknowledge. We think 
more of confessing. You've done you, you, you're uh, <clears throat> confessing on uh, something that that you've done that you've hid from someone. Finally, you confess. But and, and certainly it is appropriate in that situation. But acknowledge has a little bit of a different nuance to it, doesn't it? You're just acknowledging something. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before men, and what does it mean to acknowledge Christ before men? It has the meaning of witnessing. That's what he's talking about. Everyone who acknowledges me before men through witnessing, I will also confess, I will acknowledge him before my Father, and it's for the purpose of rewards. And I will acknowledge him before my Father for the purpose of the rewards, my Father who is in, in heaven. But, now we have a contrast. Whoever denies me before men, and that simply means fails to witness, they, they deny a lot of times, here's that denial again, that they even acknowledge God, that they acknowledge Jesus Christ. Whoever denies me before men, fails to witness, I will deny him reward. And in context there, it's rewards before my Father who is in heaven. Now, is this talking about believers or unbelievers? It's talking about believers here. We know that because look at the verse 32. Are unbelievers going to be acknowledging Christ before, before men? Are they going to be witnessing? No, this is talking about believers. But believers can also deny Christ by not witnessing. And if they don't witness then Christ is going to deny them before the Father. He's going to deny them rewards. Not difficult. The following verse has a meaning similar to the one above. In other words, here's, I'm going to give you another one that has a similar meaning to what we just had there. Can you see how that is a parallel Scripture to what we saw in 2 Timothy? Luke 9:26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So you see the same thing. If whoever it is, whatever believer there is that is ashamed of Jesus Christ and my word, how about that? Have you ever been in, in a circles where you felt a little uneasy about standing up for the word? I mean, we all have been in circumstances where if we stood firm for the faith, it would be hard to do. We would much rather blend in and not make a scene and not look like an oddball or a kook or anything else. Of course, I know y'all are looking at, me, looking at me like, well, that's never happened. Yeah, right. So, whoever is ashamed of me in that, the Son of Man is going to be ashamed of him. Now, what is this talking about? Is this talking about the rapture here? How do you know this is not talking about the rapture? You can look at this first. If you... If, if I ask you, is this verse about the rapture, you should be able to go, no. Even if I didn't look at the verse, how do I know it's not about the rapture? Because it's coming from the gospel. This is the gospel of Luke. The church age has not even started yet. They knew nothing about the church age. So when it's talking about he's, they're going to be ashamed of him, you've heard me say that you'll be ashamed when Jesus Christ comes back at the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ. Well, this is talking about old, essentially these were Old Testament saints and it appears that they're going to be ashamed when Jesus Christ comes back. This is talking about the second advent. 
They're not waiting for the rapture. They didn't even know there was a rapture. When He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and His holy, holy angels, remember when we were going over the rapture? It's my contention that Jesus Christ is coming back for His royal family personally. And there's not going to be angels there, but there will be many angels at the second advent. However, it is possible that He said this to some of these people and some of these people live right in into the church age, so now this wouldn't apply to them anymore, would it? You getting that? There were people that Jesus Christ spoke to. Who spoke? Who said this? It's a capital me, y'all. <laughs> Christ said this. So there were people who lived. You know, Christ died when he was 30. Oh, 33, somewhere along in there. So there were people who heard this, and this was appropriate, this was true for them, and certainly if they would have died before the church age began, it would still apply to them. But if they lived into 50 days after Christ was resurrected, this would no longer apply to them, would it? Now they're church age, royal family. And Christ is coming for them, not with angels, but He's coming earlier than this. Here's another one, Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, same event, second advent, <coughs> will then uh, repay every man according to his deeds. See? Some will be evident. I don't know exactly what the rewards will be. I think there's surely going to be Old Testament believers who are going to reign in the millennium. But we have more specific rewards than they. So we know that denying Christ does not result in the forfeiting of our eternal salvation. The apostle Peter denied Christ three times. Here's the scriptures up there where you can find it in all the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and also in John. Do you know what I mean when I say that? When I say it is in the Synoptic Gospels as well as John. Have you ever heard that before? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means their format. They're laid out essentially the same. When you go to John, it's completely structured different. So it's not part of the, it's not structured the way the first three are. So when they, someone mentions the synoptic gospels, they're talking about Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John is not a synoptic gospel, but it's all, this event is mentioned in all, all, both the synoptic gospels and John as well. So if denying Christ meant someone would forfeit their eternal salvation, then Peter's in big-time trouble, and we would be as well. Of course, the Bible addresses the issue of unbelievers who deny the Lord, meaning that they deny that He is the Son of God and that faith in Him is the only way to heaven. Now, it does say that sometimes. Do you see what I'm saying? This is where you have to rightly divide. I've shown you some verses that had to do with believers denying the Lord in some fashion. You got that? But we're not saying that everybody who professes Jesus Christ is a believer. And we're not saying that there are those who deny Him that are not unbelievers. Of course, they are. So I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures in that. For instance, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But false prophets, these are unbelievers, also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, among us even there are, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Isn't that interesting? 
That's the doctrine of unlimited atonement right here. You've got unbelievers who are false teachers that are in, in, introducing destructive heresies, denying Jesus Christ, and then it adds, oh, by the way, he's the one that bought them. He purchased their freedom out of the slave market of sin, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Here's the word denying, see? That's a different kind of denying than what the believers do. The believers, as a believer, we're all here, we're all believers. We cannot deny Him the way they do. Now, we can, we can get perverted and contorted and say we don't believe in Jesus Christ anymore, but we'll never fall under this destruction that they're going to have. And then Jude 1.4. Actually, it's just Jude 4. There's only one chapter in Jude. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here you have denying again right here. So what I'm saying is there are verses in the Bible that say those who deny Christ are going to be they're going to have swift destruction or here they have this they were uh, long beforehand marked out for this condemnation so we have to rightly divide sometimes there are those who deny deny christ they're unbelievers they don't believe he's the son of god they're not trusting him for eternal life and they have the consequence the result of that is eternal destruction but those other verses that we were looking at had to do with rewards and the whole thing is if you, if you execute the Christian way of life, if you grow up spiritually, you connect the dots, you found out, find out what it's all about and you pursue it, then there's going to be rewards. If not, as a believer, then you're, you're, if you deny Christ in your life, well, Christ is going to deny you before the Father. Before the Father with regards to rewards. Are you all ready to move on? You got it? Okay. Jude 4. We have Second uh, Peter 2.1 and Jude 1.4. Those are examples of deniers, of, excuse me, unbelievers denying. And they are denying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. This is what Lewis Berry Schaefer had to say about 2 Timothy 2, verse 11 through 13, which is what we had exegeted up there a moment ago. He said, The element of divine recognition with respect to reigning with Christ is in view and not salvation or the believer's place in Christ Jesus. Here, he's, he acknowledges as well. This is all about whether you're going to reign with Christ. It's about rewards. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation. And that's what... People try to make it do because they say, if you deny him, he will deny you. And from that, they just blow it completely out of context and try to make a case which you will not allow them to do if you explain it to them correctly. Okay, uh, we still have time to start a, a, a new verse this evening. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This one, if you thought that other one was difficult... <laughs> to figure out hopefully i've i've
taught it clear enough to where you have it now and you would be able to explain to someone. This is talking to believers. This is talking about rewards that have anything to do with eternal life. It's talking about denying them reward. Because Jesus Christ is faithful. We can be just big buckets of slime, which we are from time to time. It doesn't matter because our eternal destiny rests in Christ's faithfulness his integrity, His character, His veracity, His immutability, all those things, it depends on Him, not on us. Isn't it great? Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Silly me, I thought we'd be through with this by now, this verse. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now just look at that for a minute. What are you going to do when somebody points to that and say, see, this is talking about salvation, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you don't hold fast, you believed in vain. They can have a field day with this. Those who would say, oh, well, see, you didn't have the right kind of faith. You had a head belief. You didn't have a heart belief. Uh, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't have the right kind of faith. I mean, you can go on and on. You see what they can do with it. Do you see that? Now, if I just went on from right here, do you feel competent to, to, to um, defend the faith with this verse? Some of you think maybe, but I don't know. I just want you to see why what we're doing here is important. Because I'm going to take each one of these verses and I want you to be confident. You know from your systematic theology, your grace orientation, what you know about God and His essence, you know that if this is talking about eternal salvation, we cannot put a condition upon there that we hold fast the Word. And if we don't hold fast the Word, then we believed in vain. You know that that cannot be right, the way it can be taken with just, just a cursory reading. Is that right? Are we all on board on that? Okay. Let's see what's going on here. The if. Here's the if right here. Where is it up here? Yeah, right here. First of all, let's. I guess before I get to the if, now I make known to you, what does he call them here? Brethren. Is he called an unbeliever's brethren? I think not. The gospel which I preach to you, which you received, in which you also stand. By the way, this is a perfect active indicative. Perfect tense. You stand. That means it, you stand. You received it in the past and you continue to stand and the results of that go on and on. In other words, what I'm telling you, this is not just a professor, one who professes Christ. These things have already taken place. They received the gospel. Here they received, And also you're sta they were standing on the gospel. That means they believe the gospel. This is the, they, don't you stand on the gospel? <clears throat> Verse 2. By which also you are saved. Present, passive, indicative. That means you keep on being saved. You received this salvation by believing in Christ. And that little I there is big time importante. It means it's reality. Indicative mood. 
The mood re- relates the verb to reality. And this is not a subjunctive. This is an indicative. And it means, yes, and you, you were saved. Okay? Now, if we just stop, can we get an eraser and just, you know, take the rest of that verse too, if you hold fast the word and I'm free. If we could just erase that, life would be much easier. Okay, but we can't, can we? So here's the, here's the thing. The if sets up a first class. It's the first debater's conditional clause. A debater's conditional clause. And here's what this does. This is when a speaker states something as if it is true so that he can prove that it is false. See, when I said, when I was telling you about the four different conditional clauses, most of the time we say, okay, it's first class condition means that it's true. Well, it's true from the speaker's standpoint, but sometimes if you think this, if you just have that narrow definition to a first-class condition, then it would mean it's true that we, we will only be saved if we hold fast the Word, and if we don't, it means we could have, we could have believed in vain. You understand that? But this is a, this, this is a particular type of first-class condition, it's a debater's condition. In other words, the speaker is saying something as if it's true just so that he can pre- uh, prove that it's false. Maybe this will enlighten a little more. Unless, see the word unless there? Right here? Here. Unless is translated from three Greek words. Ektos, which is an uh, adverb, and a, E-I, which is a conditional conjunction this is what sets up the conditional clause the a part may me which is a negative particle and so the speaker is actually saying let us assume the brethren have believed in vain do you understand how that's what that's saying so let's go back up here this is this is what that uh, unless means he's saying if you hold fast the word which i preach to you and let's assume that you believed in vain. That's essentially the, the force of a debater's first-class conditional clause. I wish you all could see how you're looking at me right now. <laughs> Let us assume, brethren, we have believed in vain. That's the force of that. Let's go through it a little further. Put it in context. Plato taught that the body was evil. In death, your evil body was disposed of and your spirit went on. The Greeks detested the concept of a resurrection body. Paul had to correct them on this concept, and when you accept Christ, you get the whole package, including a resurrection body, whether you want one or not. You get one, period. This is what Paul is saying, but he's going to show it by setting up what they believe as a truism so that he can then tear it down. That's the debater's first-class condition. See, you know what? Obvious, I, don't, I shouldn't say obviously, but if you knew what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about, it's all about the whole thing is about resurrection. What were the Greeks? Excuse me, well, I gave it away. I was going to say, what was the Corinthians? <laughs> the Corinthians were Greeks, and the Greeks hated the idea of a resurrection body. They thought the body was dirty, it was temporal, it was... They would, the last thing they would think of what they wanted was a, 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 a their body getting getting uh, resurrected. They thought we're going to leave all this corruption behind, and we're going. And here, 
Paul comes along and he's, going, he's talking about resurrection. So the way he sets it up is with this debater's first class conditional clause. And he's saying, let's assume that this salvation that you have is, is only pertinent, that only if you continue, only if you can uh, continue to uh, hold fast the word. And if you don't continue to hold fast the word, then you believe in vain. That's what he's going to set up. And then as we go through other verses, we're going to see he's going to tie all this together with resurrection. Consider the following. First of all, the Corinthians were, the Corinthian believers were Greeks. Second of all, because of the Greek abhorrence of physical resurrection, the Corinthians were tempted to deny this aspect of the gospel. Number three, under the influence of Plato, Greeks came to despise the human body as a prison of the soul. And number four, therefore the Corinthians were missing the great blessings of their own future resurrection as well as failing to orient to the plan of God, which we would call phase three. Paul is going to use this first pop out of the box, taking their side so he can deconstruct it and show them how they're wrong. Chapter 15 is all about resurrection, and Paul was stating what they believed in order to demolish it in verses. Take your Bibles and open to it if you're not there. 1 Corinthians 15. I didn't get my Bible out. I'm trying to get it out. Does anybody have a crowbar? <laughs> there. Now, didn't I do that in anger? Just because you use forks doesn't mean it's anger. <laughs> I have a hinge broken on there. Are you all at 1 uh, Corinthians 15? Okay. If you go to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, I'll get right there. I know if you have a heading, and what, what do we call headings sometimes? Pericopes, yeah. Uh, mine says the doctrine of resurrection, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 through 58. And chapter 15 has 58 verses. So I said the whole chapter is about resurrection. So he says, now I make known, verse 1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance that I was also received, that, that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What is He talking about right off? That's the gospel. He was the Son of God. He died for our sins and He was raised. 5, verse 5. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So He's talking about Christ and His resurrection body. Verse 6. After that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Two things about that verse. First of all, He said if you don't believe it, there were 500. 
that saw Him in His resurrection body, you can go talk to them because they saw Him. They're still alive even though some of them have fallen asleep. Does it mean that they went to sleep at night? No. You know, you don't find in the New Testament Christians dying. They don't die. They go to sleep. Why? Because their body is going to be resurrected. It's as if the body is sleeping. So throughout the whole New Testament, you don't say, well, Paul died and so and so. No. The believers go to sleep because they're looking at resurrection. They considered the body when it is dead, just sleeping because it was so certain that they were going to be resurrected. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James, by the way, is his half-brother, the one that wrote the apostle that we studied, I mean, wrote the uh, epistle that we were studying, including chapter 2. Verse 8. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the churches, the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. Underline that. And His grace towards me did not prove in vain. I labored even more than all, the, all of them. And not I, but the grace that was within, with me. Through God's grace He did it. Whether then it was I or they who preached, so you believed. He gave them the gospel. See, they, they didn't... He wouldn't have the problem with giving, giving them the gospel. They just didn't like the resurrection part. And that's what he's dealing with. Now, verses 12 through, uh, 12 through 19, these are the verses that correlate mostly to, to what he's saying in the first two verses because it's all about uh, the resurrection. And they received it, verse 2, by which you are saved. Unless you hold past word, preach, unless you believed in vain. That part about believing in vain, what he's going to show, if Christ did not, if Christ did not rise from the dead, if he wasn't resurrection, then he's going to say, then you believed in vain. Did you see how he's, he is correlating what he's given in this whole chapter back to what he said in verse, verse 2. So, verse 12. Now, Christ is, has, Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... And do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now, I want you to recognize, if you could see my Bible, you'd see all these marks. That if is a first-class conditional clause, but what that is is a debater's technique. It's the same thing he used in verse 1 and 2. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, he's stating something that he knows is not true, but he's stating it as a first-class conditional clause as if it is. So then he can de deconstruct it. He says, if that's the case, then not even Christ has been raised. And then verse 14, he has another debater's technique, doing the same thing again. He says, and if Christ has not, raised, has not been raised, again, something false, he says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. See how that ties into verse 2? Verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. All He's doing there is just taking their, what they're saying and saying, if that's the case, then we're false teachers. 
Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, here's another. You see just one debater's uh, 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 technique after another. Taking, Taking what is false and saying it as if it's true so he can tell what happens. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here we have another one. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, the ones who have already died, have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see how he is just ripping to shreds this idea that he started out by saying it as if it was true so he could demolish it. So that's all the time we have time for tonight with that. Um, so if anybody says anything about, whoa, look, you, you were saved, but only if you hold fast the word which is preached to you unless you believed in vain. Let me tell you something. The right response to that, there is only one way that a person can believe in vain when it refers to Jesus Christ, and that is to believe in themselves or someone else or something else. If they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He went to the cross, He died for their sins, He was resurrected, He offers eternal life, if they trust Him, it is impossible for that faith to be in vain. Because our whole system of soteriology, the whole system of salvation is based upon a person having the right object to their faith, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've got the right object, and it's impossible for that to be in vain. You got that? And what he's saying is, the point he's making through all this, if you keep reading, you're going to find the rest of that, that whole thing is about resurrection. And so he is addressing the issue of resurrection and just setting it up in verse 1 and 2 as a debater's technique to show if this is true, and I'm saying it is, if, if, if that's the case, then this would have to happen. And if that happens, and he just goes right on down to dis- demolish what he's saying as if it's true to show that it's not true. Now, that might be as clear as mud, but maybe we'll have another shot of it next time. We're done. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time that we can fellowship in your word and how accurate it is. We never have to be afraid or worry that somewhere along the line we're going to find something that is going to be incriminating upon us because it's incumbent upon us. It depends upon us, something we do, our behavior, or whatever it may be. There's nothing in your word that would put the responsibility for our eternal destiny on anything other than that point that we believe in Jesus Christ. Everything else depends upon your integrity, your power, your love, your justice, your righteousness, your immutability, your veracity, all of it. We're so thankful that you are our mighty God and we depend upon who you are for our eternal security and it is indeed secure. And we thank you for it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.